It's Miami Art Week. So is art transforming our communities? Why would a former U.S. ambassador betray this country to Cuba? And the Keys brace for a building boom. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup. I'm your host, Tim Paget. In the next hour, we'll look at Miami Art Week, but more important, how events like it are now a development engine for some of South Florida's once struggling communities like Opalaka. We'll also ask why a senior U.S. diplomat who now lives in Miami allegedly spied for Cuba for decades and how much damage he may have done to our national security. And we'll examine a possible development surge in the Keys. Are more building and people there a good idea? All that coming up right after the news. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome to a special pledge edition of the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Bienvenidos, bienveni, bienvindo. You can make your donation to continue to support programs like this by calling 866-247-9576 or on WLRN.org. Well, if you've tried driving around downtown Miami or Miami Beach this week, you know we're in the thick of Miami Art Week, including Art Basel. Art Week is now one of the world's largest art events. But each year, we keep discovering that what matters as much, if not more, than the big money bling of this international gathering are the more low-key ways it uses art to help promote our local communities. Arguably, one of the best examples is the Art of Transformation, the programs being credited with helping revive what just a few years ago was one of South Florida's most struggling cities, Opalaka. For this year's artwork, the Art of Transformation, Art Week, excuse me, the Art of Transformation has caused extra bus with Africa Global, the largest collection of African art in Florida. Joining me now is Dr. Willie Logan. He's the president and CEO of 10 North Group. That's the Opalaka Community Development and Affordable Housing nonprofit that's presenting the Art of Transformation. Dr. Logan, thank you for being with us. Thank you for the opportunity. Now, for our listeners who aren't familiar with the Art of Transformation, tell us what has made it such a fixture of Miami, Miami Art Week over the past decade. Well, first, we've had 10 years to um, work at making what was um, an art fair just really to have activities for the local community to participate in our Basel without having to um, go to Miami Beach or pay the cost of entering some of the fairs right. into what has now turned into, quite frankly, a fine art fit, um, um, exhibition with several um, types of programming, including artist conversations, as well as um, interesting dance routines and spoken word, music, etc. And this is really all about showcasing the various neighborhoods and communities and what they have to offer. Um, in South Florida, because when it's all said and done, this is about the people who live here, the people who are stakeholders here. Right. And the work that we're doing this week has to also roll over the, the next 11 months and three weeks as an economic yeah. benefit. And it's, it's become one of the go-to Basel satellite shows of, of, of this whole event. And, and tell us also about its marquee feature this year, the remarkable Africa Global exhibit. How did that all come together? Well, it came about because we had the opportunity to acquire two collections that had been traveling around 
on the continent of Africa to all the major capitals. These were residency programs that were that involved African master artists as well as emerging artists. We were fortunate enough not only to um, sponsor and be a part of the residency programs, but also we had very strong relationships with many of the artists and they decided as a group, instead of selling those pieces individually to museums or collectors, that they would hold both um, collections in its entirety mm-hmm. and uh, we were able to acquire them. So we're right. showing about 35 pieces of one, um, five pieces from the other. They're remarkable. It talks about the experience um, of Africa global from Cuba to Brazil to Mali to South Africa, right. as well as the experiences of folks. As right. far the, the diaspora Africa. as well as the continent itself. But how did an affordable housing nonprofit like 10 North Group come to be the driving force behind this sort of community art project? Well, we, we recognize that, that art is transformative. You don't have to look very far in our community to see what the architecture, which is art, and the design um, of the buildings and, and Carl Gables, Miami Springs, South Beach has done to uplift those communities and give them a personality and make them a special place, all before they got the good restaurants and the nice clubs and yeah. the high-end condominiums, et cetera. We also understand through Wynwood and, and now looking at Alapata and, and 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 design district as well as Midtown, which was nothing but railroad tracks ten years ago, what real estate and what and infusing art um, within real estate development can do to really right. attract folks and, and make it a place that people want to come to make right. it a des- destination. And, and and tell us, Dr. Logan, what you mean by quote creative placemaking, a term you often use to describe ventures like the art of transfer. Formation. Is it about using art to just totally reimagine cities and communities as a way to spark their redevelopment, as has perhaps been the case exactly, in Opelaga? Exactly. exactly. And, and I highlighted. So, for example, we have a beautiful tower um, at the train station as well as the Hurt Building, which Tri-Rail train station passes by. A, a simple light in that tower, a simple sign or message saying you've arrived someplace would make a significant difference when people arrive to the train station saying, hmm, what is over there? That's really interesting and beautiful. And then giving them something to see, do, experience um, once they get off the train. And so what, what we really do believe is that the development of downtown Opelok, because of its proximity to a tri-rail station, that tri-rail station having access to both downtown Miami, Aventura, as well as Miami International Airport, only will make Opelok a place that you want to be doing out Basel week because you don't have to worry about the traffic. And if you want to get downtown, you just hop on tri-rail and you're in. Right. Now, other other communities here are, are experiencing this using other terms as well. I mean, earlier on this show, uh, show this year, we paid tribute to Danny Agnew, the Liberty City community development activist who was killed in a car accident in June. And we talked a, a lot about an expression he always used, artspreneurship. Is that a part of what efforts like the Art of Transformation in Opalaka is all about? Oh, absolutely. We we intend not only to bring 1,000 new units of affordable workforce and mixed um, income development into downtown Opalaka, but we intend to bring ten, tens of thousands of square foot of commercial and retail space. Right. Part of that is to go back to small entrepreneurs. You know, you don't need a Publix or a Walmart or, for that matter, a, a large grocery store in order to have access to fresh and healthy right. foods. And so this idea 
mm -hmm. of having smaller stores, smaller entrepreneurs in the right. creative space, in the retail space. In the, in the Do, Dr. Logan, unfortunately for time, again, this is a pledge show, we'll have to leave it there. I apologize. Dr. Willie Logan is president and CEO of the nonprofit 10 North Group, which is presenting the Art of Transformation in Opelika during this Miami Art Week. Dr. Logan, many thanks. And many thanks to you all. Still to come, no less than a former U.S. ambassador is arrested for spying for Cuba. I'm Tim Padgett. Welcome back to a special pledge edition of the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. You can make your donation to continue to support programs like this by calling 866-247-9576 or on WLRN.org. This week, Miami, and frankly, the entire U.S. intelligence community, was stunned by the news that Manuel Rocha, a retired U.S. diplomat in Latin America and a former ambassador to Bolivia, had been charged with spying for communist Cuba for decades. In the late 1990s, Rocha was a senior diplomat in the U.S. interest section in Havana, but he hasn't been charged with any specific acts of espionage yet. Still, Attorney General Merrick Garland is calling Rocha's alleged actions as a covert agent for Cuba, quote, one of the highest-reaching and longest-lasting infiltrations of the U.S. government by a clandestine operative. The two larger questions, of course, are why would Rocha have done this and just how much damage to U.S. national security did he likely do? What do you think the answers to those questions are? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now to hash out those issues is David Adams. He's one of the most respected veteran correspondents covering Latin America and Cuba today, and he's been covering this bizarre story for the New York Times. David, how are you? Good. Thanks for that introduction, uh, Tim. <laughs> So let's quickly review who Manuel Rocha is. He's 73. He was born in Colombia. He was raised in a low-income housing project in Harlem in New York. Then he got into an elite Connecticut boarding school and Yale and Harvard universities. He goes on to a stellar career in the State Department. He holds high-level posts in Argentina, Cuba, and an ambassadorship in Bolivia. And yet from the beginning of his career, back in the early 1980s, according to the federal indictment, he was aiding Cuba as a covert agent. David, tell us about the undercover FBI sting that finally led to the discovery of his life as a spy for all those years. Well, um, it's pretty extraordinary. Um, uh, the FBI sent an undercover agent, uh, reached out to uh, Mr. Rocha um, on WhatsApp and and, uh, and this was about a year, him. a little more than a year ago, right? Uh, yeah, I think it was either a year ago or beginning of this year. Mm -hmm. um, and, no, November and, of 2022, and, I believe. Yeah. Okay. And um, the uh, the Cubans apparently, um, according to the indictment, um, had not been in touch with Mr. Rocha um, for several years, not since uh, 2017, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and so Mr. Rocha appears to have been uh, happy. Uh, to hear from them. Um, and obviously, we don't know exactly sort of the, the nature of this conversation. It, it it appears to be a very friendly conversation. The the undercover agent breaks through very quickly. All right. Um, and and Mr. Rocha falls for his the ploy um, and opens up 
um, about his relationship with the Cuban government. In, and there's a key moment. D- dating back uncovered... to 1981, right? Well, actually, dating back to 1973, um, oh, the, the, the undercover agent very cleverly drops into the conversation that he knows that Mr. Rocha has been working for the Cuban government since uh, a visit he made to Chile uh, in the midst of the overthrow of uh, the Allende right. government right. in 1973. Yeah. Um, and this clearly convinces Mr. Rocha that the, the, the undercover agent is, in fact, a, a Cuban right. agent. So- and that's so, when he opens up. So how, how was Rocha able to keep his spying activity for Cuba hidden all that time? Well, Tim, that's a very good question. Um, and one of the weird things about this uh, uh, indictment is that there's absolutely no evidence of how he communicated with the Cubans or any evidence of what uh, information he might have given the Cubans. And in fact, there is no espionage uh, charge right, as in I, the indictment. I, right, as I mentioned in the introduction. So let's talk about what you and I have been hearing from intelligence analysts this week about why Rocha allegedly did this spying for Cuba and why he would have sympathized with Cuba's communist regime in the first place. I mean, one theory is that he might have harbored resentments about the U.S. stemming from his relatively poor childhood. One analyst I spoke with, um, who'd been a friend of Rocha's since the 1980s, suggested he might have had bad experiences with, say, rich kids at his boarding school and in the Ivy League. Are you hearing similar speculation? Uh, Yes, uh, absolutely. In fact, um, uh, for the story that I've been working on with The New York Times, we certainly uncovered evidence that um, his experience um, at Taft, the, the private school you mentioned in Connecticut, was um, not entirely a good one. I mean, he excelled there. Uh, he was uh, a captain of his soccer team, but he he didn't have, he wasn't, um, you know, he wasn't necessarily a great fit there. I mean, from growing up, as you said, in, in the projects in Harlem, um, he was very much in a different, moving in a different world, a different circle, um, with the children of the United States um, elite, elite, right? Um, yeah, um, and 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 there were um, there were uh, troubling things that happened um, during that period, but um, you know he then, curiously, he then goes on to have you know a stellar career. He, he goes to Harvard, right? Um, you know he goes to Yale and Harvard um, and Georgetown. Um, and gets into the foreign service and has a you know a, a pretty stellar career. Doesn't make it all the way to the top. He becomes ambassador, but not a career ambassador. Mm-hmm. And he's able to retire, um, you know, on a on a comfortable pension. And then he goes to work in Miami, doing various um, jobs for law firms. He works for a, for Barrick Gold, a Canadian uh, gold mining company in the Dominican Republic. Assume one assumes he made very good money there. Yeah. Um, uh, so. The one really curious thing is that throughout the, these years of success in uh, in his career, he seems to be, people tell us that he's obsessed with money and to a certain extent, um, status. Right. He tells people on numerous occasions, I'm not making enough money at the State Department um, to make the right. real kind of money I need put my children, he has two children, right. through the best private And that's, that's a common story in other espionage cases like this that we've seen in the past uh, also. Yeah. And, and, and one would imagine that he was being paid handsomely then. No. Uh, no? Oh, no. No, no? No, he was not. Okay. So, so uh, tell us about the Cubans, that. Yeah. The, the Cubans typically do not pay 
again, assuming that this indictment is true, mm-hmm. um, um, we know we know it, it's established fact. The Cubans, the, the previous Cuban um, spies, or people who've spied for Cuba, the Cubans don't pay them. Um, mm-hmm. They do it um, out of conviction. Um, okay. Unlike, say, the, the the Soviet era or the Russians, you know, who, who you know, you can be, you can get quite rich off some of working for them, but not the Cubans. The in fact, the indictment is is extraordinary because it it it, it charges that Mr. Rocha enriched himself spying for Cuba by obtaining a U.S. government salary, and in fact, the indictment includes. The annuity, his pension, uh, his four thousand five hundred dollar monthly pension payments. Right. There's a wire fraud charge uh, alleging that those were, if you like, obtained fraudulently because he was working for the Cuban government all right. the time. Well, that, there is no evidence of, of yeah. him being paid by the Cubans. Well, that that's a great point, David, and 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 it makes it all of this even that much more of a mystery, frankly. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. We're talking about the former U.S. ambassador charged with spying for Cuba. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. So, David, let's let's pivot, pivot here from Rocha himself to the damage he may well have done to U.S. national security after allegedly handing over classified information to the Cubans for more than two decades or three. For starters, as Attorney General Merrick Garland points out, Rocha was in a high enough diplomatic echelon to do some pretty bad damage, right? Yes, definitely. Um, Look, Tim, uh, I give you my personal um, uh, experience. I knew uh, Mr. Rocha in Honduras, um, when he was posted there between 1987 and 1989, he was the political military affairs officer. Um, I even played poker with him once. Yep. Um, and uh, he was the liaison between the U.S. Embassy, the State Department, the Hon- and the Honduran um, Defense Ministry. And he was working closely with the U.S.-backed Contra guerrillas. Um, in that position, he had access to all of the latest um, traffic between the U.S. government and the Honduran government, information about the kind of access the U.S. government was seeking to Honduran military bases for the logistics network that the Contras had um, in many secret locations um, yeah. in Honduras. And he would have been speaking on a regular basis, probably with the Contras too. That information, if it made its way back to Cuba, could very possibly have made it so its way also back to Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua. Oh, no doubt. In other, yeah. in other, in other words, the, the, the potentially the Sandinista government had a mole in the U.S. Mm-hmm. embassy in Tegucigalpa. Right. And my, my one contact with him was in 2002 when he was ambassador to Bolivia, when he was, strangely enough, condemning the leftist presidential candidate, Emilio, uh, uh, Evo Morales, for um, encouraging coca use among the indigenous. Uh, in Bolivia, which, uh, which 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 seems a little out of step with his leftist sympathies with Cuba, but maybe that was all part of his ruse. But but the but the real point here is yeah, that they, he was the ambassador them. in that embassy, and he would have had access to just about every agency you know document that you can imagine that could have been funneled to 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 not only Cuba, but let let's face it, to Cuba's allies, much more powerful allies like Russia and China, right? Right. Yeah. Again. Assuming that these allegations are true, he's, he, he, he must be considered innocent until proven guilty. Sure, yeah. Um, he most certainly had access 
to, you know, uh, he went on, by the way, to work in the National Security Council too, giving him the highest clearances um, that you can get. In and we should point conference. out he was also working here with Southcom, this the U.S. Military Southern Command based here in Miami. Right. The I mean, in 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 Bolivia, some people have even suggested that his comments about Evo Morales, um, which um, you know, saying that the U.S. would cut off U.S. aid to Bolivia if he was ever elected. Um, some people say that gave Mr. Morales' um, election campaign right um, a boost, a, right. A, a, a boost, and that so maybe, maybe so maybe the, he did intend he, maybe he did right he did intend because he knew that it would actually help a leftist candidate. Yeah, very very yeah, I mean, very baroque. I, uh, <laughs> right. I mean, there's another way of looking at that, and which um, is you know, U.S. policy in Bolivia at the time was very focused on drug trafficking, and so while it wasn't necessarily the smartest thing for Mr. Rocha to say so bluntly, yeah. Um, uh, it was kind of an expression uh, and apparently right. had not been cleared by his superiors. It was right. kind of a fairly honest expression of U.S. Uh, policy. Did, did, and Mr. Rocha quietly left the country right. uh, the morning of the inauguration of the of the new president. D David, uh, Mr. Mr. Morales did not win that election, by did, the way. Right. He, he won he, later in 2005. David, right. in just the minute we have left, I, we should m mention that Rocha also held a senior diplomatic post at the U.S. intersection in Cuba for two years in the late 1990s. And that, of course, has led to speculation here in Miami that he might have been involved in the spy plot that led to the Cuban military shooting down two small planes piloted by Cuban exiles in 1996. In just the 30 seconds we have left here, David, has any evidence emerged this week in that regard? Well, uh, only that when he, uh, Mr. Rocha spoke to the undercover uh, FBI agent, um, he uh, claimed to have had a hand in that. He right. didn't go into okay. any detail, but um, you know, that's kind of scary. I, I flew on those planes uh, several times. Right. Um, uh, but, you know, there is no I mean, his word. One of the key things that going forward in this case is, is Mr. Rocha going to be able to quash his his, if you like, confession um, in that undercover interview? Right. Um, that would be probably right. that may be the first task of his lawyer. Right. And we should mention that he, he, he refers back to his work for the Cubans as hitting grand slams for them as a spy. Right. Right. David Very Adams nice is a veteran forward. Latin America correspondent based here in Miami, covering this story this week for The New York Times. David, many thanks as always. My pleasure, Tim. Still to come, are the keys poised for a building boom and a charter? This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to a special pledge edition of the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. You can make your donation to continue to support programs like this by calling 866-247-9576 or on WLRN.org. The state of Florida may soon loosen development restrictions in the Florida Keys, which have long been the tightest guidelines in the state. The Florida Commerce Department says Monroe County's population has simply grown too much not to permit significantly more residential and business construction in the Keys. And so it may soon unleash a building boom, the likes of which the Keys haven't seen since Jimmy Buffett made the place a hip destination a half century ago. Still, critics are asking, is it wise to spark that boom now when climate change has made the hurricane target on the Keys' back even bigger? Not to mention the risks of flooding and even more ecological damage to our vital coral reefs. 
Monroe County residents, not coincidentally, are posed to vote next year on whether to adopt a government charter, which could help the Keys raise more revenue for badly needed infrastructure projects to confront climate change. So would a building boom be good or bad for the Keys? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now from the Keys is the Keys reporter for the Miami Herald, David Goodhue. David, always great to have you on. Hey, Tim, how are you? I'm doing great, thanks. What is it exactly that the Florida Department of Commerce is considering here for the Keys? And I should stress the word considering, right? Yeah, it's it's going to end up being some kind of compromise in between the very largest number of developments that they can allow and what they have now. Um, basically, back in the 70s, the state can, uh, can, uh, made the keys what's called the an area of critical state concern. Right. And that means that eventually they, it would cap out on the amount of uh, uh, new building permits uh, that were allowed to be issued in Monroe County. Right. Put a put a very low ceiling on on that development. Yeah. Yes. And so, so, so this year, this was supposed to be the year where where it ended. If I mean, there were a, there's a certain amount of uh, undeveloped lots that people bought. There's about eight thousand of them left mm-hmm. in the county, and this was supposed to be the people bought those lots under the under the under the knowledge that they might not ever be able to build on them. They might not ever be able to get a, a building permit. Right. So this this plan so, would then open the door off the bat to as many, as you report, as many as 8,000 new homes and businesses in the Keys. Correct. Okay. And so, again, let's reiterate, why does the state feel it's time for the Keys to take on more development now? I mean, you mentioned that, you know, it, 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 they, they feel like the, uh, the timetable, we've come to the point where it's time for the Keys to reassess this, what some people call a little, uh, you know, very restrictive guidelines on development there, right? Correct. Yeah. Um, basically, it was always supposed to be looked at with every new census. That every came every decade, right? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So the, the, we've gone. Uh, the, the Monroe County has gone up about ten thousand re- residents, uh, permanent and vacation residents, since uh, twenty ten. About eighty thousand people in the Keys right now. Mm-hmm. So that's why they're. That's why they're. That, that's why they put the number eight. It's it's like seven thousand nine hundred fifty four. Okay. So the state is essentially telling the keys, look, we know you want to keep, you know, keep a limit on this, but you can't allow that many people to come in, you know, and live here without building more housing and business infrastructure. Yeah, correct. Okay. But I guess we also have to ask David, you know, just uh, just to get <laughs> out of our system here, how much of this is part and parcel of Tallahassee's efforts to thwart efforts in the Keys to limit development? And and I'm saying this because it's we're all still very mindful of the dispute a few years ago involving Key West's attempt to curb, for example, cruise ship traffic at its port. Mm. Oh, that, that, that's a big part of it, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> so so there is politics involved in this. Of right? course, always is. Okay. <laughs> Okay. Thanks for that reminder. Now, <laughs> you you point out in your article this week that the, the development rules in the Keys, they rank as, as the most restrictive in the state because the whole 113-mile-long archipelago is, is designated, as, as, as you just mentioned before, quote, an area of critical state concern. Those rules are really a result of the last big building boom the String of Islands experienced a half century ago in the 1970s. They're mm-hmm. encapsulated in a law known as the Rate of Growth Ordinance, or ROGO, right? Can, can you tell us more about that and, and the effect it's had uh, on the Keys since then? 
Yeah, yeah. Basically, when you buy a property, an empty property, you're put on a, a rogo a rogo list, and you have to go through a, a, a slew of obstacles before you'll ever be able to build on on your property. Uh, you might have to plant vegetation. You might have to remove invasive vegetation. There, there's there's a number of things, and it, it can go on for years and years and years. And and for for a lot of these properties, a lot of these property owners, it has, and that's mm -hmm. why. Again, there's you know roughly eight thousand left that have never been able to put anything on their property. Right. So, do even a lot of keys res and let's say even a lot of eco-minded keys residents maybe feel at this point that there was some overreach there, administrative overreach on on the county's part uh, with with Rogo. Yeah, yeah, that's fair to say. Yeah, but as you mentioned, Rogo was supposed to be revisited about every decade. Um, and and I think one question people might have, well, well, who was who was the entity supposed to be doing the revisiting, the state or Monroe County? The, the state, ultimately, but Monroe County definitely has a say. And that's actually what's going to happen with this proposal. Uh, the county commission's expected to meet next weekend. I mean, next week, rather. Okay, so that, that's good to clarify. I mean, because I, I think some people might feel that, look, you know, we've had the past few years so many experiences with, quote, um, uh, uh, um, the word I'm looking for um, the state sort of imposing its will on on local preemption. Sorry, uh, imposing its will on local governments these days. I, I think so. It's 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 good for us to point out that it, that the county really does have more of a say here than in in than what it perhaps looks like. Yeah, absolutely. They're they're going to meet and they're going to recommend something, and then that whatever they recommend will end up going to the legislature. Okay, this is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm I'm Tim Paget. We're talking about a possible new building boom in the Keys and whether that's good or bad. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. David, obviously not everyone is thrilled about the prospect of accelerated growth in the Keys, and a lot of it has to do with hurricanes or hurricane evacuation, right? Mm -hmm. Correct. Okay. Tell us more about that concern. Okay. You're, basically, you're supposed to have a window of 24 hours to get people out of the Keys when when a hurricane's approaching, um, even longer for, you know, when you consider tourists, but, re but residents to the 24-hour period. If they got all 8,000 of these developments, that would go up to about 31 hours. They would they would increase the window. But the, but the concern is a lot. Uh, for instance, it, it takes a long time to get people out. There's one road in, one road out, yep. basically. The, you forget about Cardstown Road, but there's US-1, the overseas highway. It goes mm -hmm. in and out. So you're getting, you're getting everyone from Key West up to Key Largo out. Then the keys aren't the if, 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 a, if a big storm's targeting south florida well the keys aren't the only ones trying to get get it go north you have miami-dade county broward county palm beach county right so everyone's so once you, even you get it out of the keys you're gonna you're gonna have a backup on the turnpike that back that, that makes it even more difficult to get people out on time and safer yeah. and safely out of the keys but there and, are i mean I'll, I'll, go ahead i'm sorry. sorry no sorry go ahead no i mean i'll give you a uh uh kind of a, a a warning on the on the heels of all this was a couple of weeks ago, we had a unforecasted storm system that sat over South Florida that basically created hurricane conditions. No one was prepared for it. Yeah. Um, and on on the overseas highway, there's an 18 mile stretch that goes through the Everglades that connects Florida City on the mainland mm -hmm. to Key Largo. Well, the storm was that storm was so powerful and created caused so much, uh, you know, Damage that was fixed, but still, it it yeah. 
pumped a bunch of seaweed onto the highway mm -hmm. that if people had to get out, it would be like driving on snow. Right. So well, that, that, that leads that leads to my next question. There are also serious environmental considerations stemming from this climate change anxiety I mentioned before. You point out, for example, flooding in, in your article is, is, is a key concern and especially mm -hmm. more potential damage to Florida's already flatlining coral reefs. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And not only that, which also what also adds damage to the coral reefs or our sewage problems and uh -huh. you know a few week a few years ago about about 10 years ago now they the monroe county create uh build a centralized sewer system throughout uh billions of dollars um it's already starting to fail um the coral rock that the keys are built upon are very porous so when you do have any kind of sewage problems it, it yeah. seeps right out into the mm -hmm. near shore, near shore waters right where the reef where the reef is so that's already causing problems now I mean, and, and that brings me, David, along those lines, I also need to ask about Monroe County's plans to hold a referendum next year on whether or not to adopt a charter for the first time. Is the main purpose to give the county the ability to raise more tax revenue, to build more infrastructure, to tackle those climate change challenges? Yes, it is. Okay. It is. Okay. So that would be the main the main thrust of that. Finally, David, I, I guess any devil's advocate, though, would point out that one of the other big problems the Keys has today is affordable housing. In the state's oh, yeah. defense, would this possible plan to build more residential units in the Keys be a plus in that regard? Perhaps, but it could also be kind of a Trojan horse because they have a the they've had a lot of development since COVID. Really, the Keys became a more of a year-round place. Mm -hmm. You know, since COVID, because it was wide open, where, whereas right. other places weren't. So th th there's plenty of new businesses down there that happen, but people still can't afford to, to live. The, pe the people they need to work there can't afford to live there. Okay, so build building 8,000 more units then probably is not going to drop the price of living in the Keys significantly enough for a lot of people. It might even make things more expensive. Uh, <laughs> very very good point. Thanks. So, David, in, in just 15 seconds here, where do we go from now? How soon will we see a resolution to this? Well, we'll find out ultimately during the legislative season uh, in January. Um, right now, like I said, there's a there's a county commission meeting okay. coming up next week. David Goodhue is the Florida Keys reporter for the Miami Herald. David, many thanks. Thanks. Tim. Thanks for having me. Before we say goodbye today, we want to wish our Jewish friends in the community a happy Hanukkah, which started last night, Chag Sameach. And we also want to wish our Buddhist friends here a happy Bodhi Day, which commemorates the awakening enlightenment of the Buddha, Bulu Saranai. That'll do it for the Florida Roundup. It was produced by Julia Cooper with help from Helen Acevedo and Polly Landis. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming. Our director of enterprise reporting and journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Mateo Sanchez is digital editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's vice president of news. The vice president of radio and the show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Mertz. Richard Ives answers the phones. I'm Tim Paget. Have a great weekend, and thanks for listening. Gracias, merci, obrigado. WLRN Public Media.